And welcome, Hoosier fans, to this week's edition of Banner Monday, where we begin the week the best way we know how, by talking Indiana basketball and Big Ten hoops. Two quick housekeeping notes off the top. Number one, keep supporting our friends at Homefield Apparel. Uh, you can go there uh, on the webpage, homefieldapparel.com, promo code ASSEMBLY20. Also, if you want to support your local food banks, go to foodpantries.org backslash or feedingamerica.org. Tonight is the uh, sixth edition of our rewatch series of classic <coughs> IU NCAA basketball tournament games. We'll be doing a synchronized rewatch of the 1976 national championship game between Indiana and Michigan starting tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern time, followed by a live postgame show. Go to assemblycall.com backslash rewatch to get all the details. And now I'm pleased to welcome in from the Big Ten Network, the Sporting News and Fox, one of the hardest working men in college hoops. And even when there are no college hoops to cover, it's the venerable Mike DeCourcy. And Mike, um, it's it's an honor for me to to be here uh, for Jared. Uh, your work on Banner Monday and, and in, over the years has just been remarkable covering sports. So uh, a little bit of a fanboy here uh, in in getting to talk some sports with you. But how are you doing on this championship Monday uh, when there is no championship game tonight in the NCAA? <laughs> You know, I think it hit me the most on Saturday of all the days that ordinarily we would be having the tournament. I think Saturday was the one that hit me the most. And and I put out a tweet that there was a there was a sports editor at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette when I was working at the Pittsburgh Press named Bruce Kyden, who was uh, very kind to me when I was a young reporter. And I think it was in 88 at the Final Four. I saw him in the press room and he mentioned to me that that was his favorite day of the sporting calendar with the, the semifinal Saturday at final four. And, you know, I'm, I, 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 what's interesting about the tournament for me, it, it really what's interesting about March is that everybody seems to have a different favorite element and that's what makes it so great. I mean, you have Bruce saying that some might say the championship game is certainly what draws the biggest audience. I had someone tell me last weekend uh, that the Sweet 16 is their favorite round, which I hadn't heard before. But that was that that was their choice, and and others obviously probably the if you did a, a Twitter poll, the largest contingent would vote for the first weekend of the tournament, the Friday, the the, the Thursday, Friday, the first two days, the the longest day in sports. And then for me, as as someone who just is an absolute head over heels junkie. My favorite week is actually selection week, championship week, whatever you want to call it. When there's so much basketball, you just you turn around and you hit you hit your head on another game. That's my favorite week. So that's what makes March wonderful is that everybody has a has a part that they love the most, but everybody pretty much loves the whole month. And I I got through the the bewilderment or the days of having the tournaments canceled that Thursday. And then a week later, this tournament was supposed to start. And I think a little bit of that daze was still in place. But when we hit semifinals Saturday, I think that that's when I felt it the most. And, and I looked up at the, uh, my wife and I were having dinner. We're having burritos at home. And uh, I looked up at the clock and it was like 10 to, 10 to 6. And I said, we'd be just a few minutes from tip-off right now. And, and, and I really missed it then. 
it is it is amazing how quick it ended this year, and you really didn't have any time to really think about what it was going to be like, and then the first round hits you, and then the Sweet 16, uh, a lot of traditions. Uh, you're a bracketologist. Uh, I run a high school group called Delphi Bracketology and have been into the bracket work for the last five years, and we had our last meeting on uh, March 10th, and then everything was canceled two days later, and it just comes to a, a quick end. And so it, it's kind of tough, and there's been a lot of uh, a good brackets and things to keep us somewhat busy, but nothing like the games. And tonight's going to be a little bit of a absence. A lot of traditions, too, with fans uh, from families going to Final Fours. My dad, when a long time ago, talking about 1976, would always make a chocolate cake on uh, Championship Monday. So, uh, you know, I'm going to be uh, missing those things tonight. But that leads us into there, there's no game tonight. I'm going to ask you this. Who would your pick, and we don't have a bracket because matchups are so important uh, in the NCAA tournament, but if I could ask you, who would you think would have been a national championship and who might be that surprise team, a, a three-seed or lower, that might have been able to put six games together and come out as champion tonight? You know, I, I had sort of convoluted in a way uh, when asked to do this a while back, a couple, a week or so ago, sort of convinced myself into thinking that Villanova was going to win. And I don't know that I thought Villanova was going to win. And I still don't know if, but like when you start doing the matchups and you, okay, well, Kansas would have been in the South. I have no doubt that they would have gotten from there to the final four. If that had had come out, not because that they were unconquerable, but I think that positioning themselves in the South was a really smart strategic move would have been had there been a bracket, a really smart strategic move would have kept them away from a lot of people who would have been dangerous to them, especially if they played in Indianapolis and they had to deal with a Butler crowd or a Kentucky crowd or a Louisville crowd. Uh, they would have been the, the, the uh, not the underdog, but the, uh, the, the, the opponent, the road team for lack of a better term, at a lot of those kinds of games. if And, of course, we don't know. Maybe none of those teams would have wound up in Indy, but I think some of them would. And so I think they made a really start, smart strategic move, and I think that the South would have been kind of an empty region. So I had them getting out. And then I had Gonzaga getting out of the West because I thought the region set up beautifully for them with San Diego State being their number two. Uh, and then I had Dayton as the number one in the Midwest, but I don't think they would have won the region. So I had Kentucky winning that region in my mind. And then in the East, I had Villanova winning. Okay, so then what do you have? You have uh, you have a Villanova-Kansas matchup, and they played once already. And Azubuke was such an important part of what made Kansas great. Now, it would have required another brilliant shooting ex exhibition. But when Villanova played Seton Hall at the end of February, the the terrific center for Seton Hall, Romaro Gill, could not play in about the last 15, 16 minutes of that game. He couldn't play. They couldn't put him back in the game. There wasn't anybody for him to guard. And every and, and, and Villanova just kept making shots, and they really struggled to guard them. And Gill was sitting there watching it all, and it just didn't work. And I thought, well, what if they came out and did the same thing to Azabuki? Who would he guard? And I know they wouldn't have anybody necessarily to defend uh, Doak, but that, you know, they didn't really have anybody necessarily to defend Gale either. And it didn't matter. He couldn't be in a game. So I convinced myself that if that game had come to pass, 
that Villanova would have won. And I had Kentucky beating Gonzaga and playing Villanova for the championship. And I think that would have favored Villanova. So that's how I got myself into that box. And, <laughs> and it's a totally manufactured box and, and I'm not, and, and it's not, and I'm not held to it because there's no bracket, but that's kind of how the backward way I got myself into thinking that Villanova was going to win it again. If we'd had a real bracket, I don't think that there's any likelihood I would have picked Villanova to win it. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because uh, in such a crazy year, uh, other than Kansas being so far out in front of everyone, I was wondering if a, a you know a lower seed could just find that magic this year and, and pull off an upset that on paper wasn't there. I was thinking along the lines of a, a Seton Hall, uh, someone like that who had a Miles Powell type of player who just had a streak. Um, of good games, uh, and it would have been interesting to see that play out. But we don't have that, and, and what we do have is transfers uh, happening. Uh, and we don't have a lot of stuff to talk about Indiana basketball, so I'm just going to take this to a Big Ten. And since uh, the guys on the show call me coach and, and I coach high school, I, I'm going to get your opinions on some some coaching from your perspective. But um, you've seen uh, Matt Harms. Uh, you mentioned to me the, the young man, Julius from Michigan, uh, Muhammad from Ohio State. There are some transfers starting to happen and will continue to happen uh, in the Big Ten. What impact does this transfer portal have on roster management and ultimately coaches from year to year? And I'm, a, I'm such an old guy that that used to be a negative when players transferred out. Um, the Bob Knight, Luke Recker transfer and all that, you wondered what was going on and you saw it more of a negative. Is it still that negative, or is it just part of doing business uh, in today's era where 13 scholarships, it's hard to keep 13 players? Um, your thoughts on the transfer portal? You know, it's not a negative, but I don't know that it's always the smart thing to do. Luther Muhammad started, I think, all, not every game, but almost every game at Ohio State this year averaged 25 minutes a game. And he decided that he wasn't featured enough in the offense to come back. I, I don't think that people are getting the best advice in a lot of these circumstances. Look, if you're starting every game, you're fine. Like, unless you, you know, like, like if you clash with the coach or whatever, or, or, but, but not many people cl- clashing with Chris Holtman. He's too easy to get along with. The, the whole thing was he wanted more shots and you know who gets the shots, the guys who make the shots, that's how it works. You make more shots, you get more shots. And it, it's, you know, this, it, it, right. it's, it's true in any level of basketball. You make more shots, you get more shots. Everyone's a shooter, but not, you know, or a taker. Not everyone's a maker. Um, we, we yeah. deal that with in high school. Everyone wants to take the shots, but we, we just want the guys who, who make them to take them. Um, on, on the receiving end, should schools, uh, and we're talking the top tier uh, with the Big Ten because that's our focus, how often does a transfer in – uh, to a Big Ten school, really make a major impact? To, I, I feel sometimes it just fills a roster spot, maybe a starting spot or a bench spot. But a lot of times you might see some, the Fitzner case in the Indiana, where it didn't really work out. Uh, do, do, does the right. transfer portal help schools moving kids in to the Big Ten, in your opinion? It has in a lot of circumstances. Uh, it, you look at Bryn Forbes, for instance, uh, was playing at Cleveland State, thought he could do better, and he did. He he played for some excellent teams. He played for a Final Four team at Michigan State. He's playing in the NBA now. Well, he's in the NBA now. No one's playing. Uh, but he 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 
he's an example of a player that certainly has improved himself by by moving into a different circumstance. Duncan Robinson, the extreme example, going from Division Three to being a, a an exceptional player on a high major team that played in the national championship game and now is an NBA player. So not everyone's road goes as well as those two went, but we've seen it happen. Rutgers has done very well with some transfer players. Uh, they, you know, they had uh, in the past, they've had, they've had some transfer players this year. Jacob Young was a very successful player for them, a very important player. So I, like, I'm not saying that, Every transfer is a wrong decision. Uh, I think I understand Matt Harms to an extent. I mean, he's he's playing with Travion Williams. Travion Williams does most things better than he does, with the exception of blocking shots. And he was probably going to lose. It, look, if Travion Williams comes back with a big time body, he's going to lose a lot of minutes. Then I mean, he's already lost a, a fair amount he would lose even more if Travion comes back in the kind of shape that he should as a junior. Now, some of that's a little bit more of a challenge because he can't get full-time strength training in person as he ordinarily would. But I still think that I still think there's a good chance we see Travion Williams playing toward a more of a pro body next year. And if he does, he'll play more. So I kind of get that one. David DeJulius, that one's a mystifying one to me because they're, you know, with uh, Xavier Simpson moving on, there's a lot of minutes that are open at, at the guard spots at Michigan. Uh, no one ever told David not to shoot. Uh, and you could, all you had to do is watch any one of their games to see that. I mean, he got any shot he wanted. Um, so exactly what, what his decision is based on, I don't get it. Uh, but that, you know, so some of the decisions make sense. Some of the decisions don't, but if you are a, a college basketball coach now you have to be in a very fortunate position to close your doors to all transfers it I just don't see how you can do it any longer uh there's it, it you're, you're losing too many players to early entry to deserve it early entry to warrant it early entry to premature early entry guys who really don't have a shot but are going anyway and to transfers that make sense because they're not getting a lot of run but they still could probably help you if they stayed and to those that make no sense because they're getting plenty of run and plenty of opportunity, and yet they still think they can do better elsewhere. So there's so many things against you on the on the outflow side that you have to be open to everything on the inflow side. And that means recruiting high school kids, recruiting kids who might reclass, uh, recruiting, uh, being available and open to transfers who are in the portal and recruiting those players, as well as to recruiting grad transfers. I think you have to be open to everything. And with that being open, um, Indiana's roster is somewhat in, in flux depending on a reclassification of a freshman. If, if he comes and no one transfers out, I believe uh, Indiana's roster is full. But if Indiana had one spot open, uh, that transfer in, a grad transfer in, where would you see that position-wise for the Indiana Hoosiers? Where do you think Archie might go um, to bring in? Um, what position uh, would be the priority for Archie Miller, in your opinion? I think the first thing that I think the number one thing that he would need would be uh, a, a, another big body uh, because you presume that, okay, you get a second point guard uh, coming in if he reclasses and then you're going to, you're going to get some 
shooting, some, some spot shooting, some, you know, the guys that you hope will grow into more than that with over time with the other freshmen in the class. Uh, but you lose Deron Davis. And so you, you could use another big body to cover for Joey Brunk and trade and, and trace Jackson Davis. That would be what I would say. And now that big body could be a shooter. If you can find one, that'd be ideal, obviously, because it gives you so many more options, or it could be somebody that's a low post guy, uh, that whatever it might be, another big body that you can get 18, 20 minutes out of. So more than likely, it would probably the ideal player would be a uh, a grad transfer from a mid major looking to move up and have the experience of playing in a high major, but understanding that starters minutes would not be available. That he would be good with playing, though you know taking. 10 off of Trace, 10 off of Joey, maybe a couple more here or there if he has that shooting ability. Um, and, and then, you know, somewhere between 18 and 22 minutes a game. I, I like your talk of a, of a stretch four, a, a big man who can shoot. They seem to be everywhere but Indiana these days. And that's nothing against our guys. I, I like <laughs> our guys. But, you know, you got Garza posting up and shooting a three. I'd, I'd like to see some of that. The news on flavored e-cigs talks a lot about the technology and teen use, but parents need to know more about the dangers of nicotine. So know this. One, nicotine is one of the most toxic of all poisons. Two, kids are more at risk for developing addiction. Three, a nicotine addiction can make it easier for kids to get addicted to other drugs. So even when it tastes like candy, nicotine is brain poison. Go to flavorshookkids.org for more. Sticky notes, email alerts, a string around your finger. They're just not big enough. So here's a big reminder from the California Lottery. The Mega Millions jackpot is over $250 million. Whew. Play now. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player five. And let's transition to coaching here on the second half of, of our show here. Um, when, as a, uh, when you go to interview, post games or, or interview call in, what – What's it like working with coaches and and without names? I don't want to have good or bad. You could say good uh, coaches, but what what what's really um, helps you do your job um, from the college coaches? Um, what characteristics? Well, I, I am I am very blessed that um, that I've been able to have access to a lot of great coaches over the years, and the position that the Sporting News has afforded me since 1995 is the opportunity to gain trust from a lot of coaches as well. And so what I really look for when I, when I'm talking to coaches after the game is if I can get, uh, if I can get with a head coach or an assistant on the side and just sort of get a couple of whispers about what did you really try to accomplish there? What were you really trying to get done? Uh, you know, was this, this is what I saw. Am I right? Those kinds of things. And just so, you know, sometimes it's more about making sure that I'm going in the right direction than anything. You, you know, yeah, that, that was exactly what we had in mind. Uh, it didn't work out, you know, that's, that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I, one of the things that, um, that I have talked about with coaches over the years is as we've gotten to more media and, and it's interesting because, you know, a lot of, Newspapers have cut staff, but there's more media now because of the internet, uh, because there are uh, sports specific, we- school specific websites like this one that do a great job. 
you know, especially schools with great followings like Indiana, Kentucky, Carolina, Kansas, they have a lot of those. And so coaches have tended to be more insular about who they let in practices. And I've always tried to tell coaches, look, you know, to a certain extent, and, you know, you can't have 100 people in your practice every day if you have 100 people to cover your team. But if you've got two, three or five people, it's to your benefit that they see you practice. And I always use this story as an example. When I was covering Memphis in 1994, it was 94, 95, I believe it was. So they were having a good year because they ended up making the Sweet 16 that year. They had a young man who uh, who, uh, played, who was a big star at the local high school, won a state championship with his high school and went to Memphis. And not a lot of people recruited him, but Memphis took him. He was a really good athlete, but he did not take instruction well. I think he wasn't really that interested. And so Larry Finch would say, go to the right, and he would go to the left. I mean, it was like, no matter what was, and I just don't think he was listening. He was the nicest kid. He was going to be a minister. He probably is now. I mean, the nicest kid in the world. But he just didn't pay attention to instruction. And I was there every single day in practice because Larry had open practices and I was the only beat writer. So I'm there every day and I'm seeing this happen. And then midway through the season, they're having a good year and the kid's not playing very much. And so his family says they want to come and meet me at the newspaper office. So I sat down with him and with the father and the uncle and, and with my boss and we were in a conference room and they were like complaining about the fact their son never played. And and I said, look, your, your son's the nicest kid in the world. But when Larry says go right, he goes left and vice versa. He doesn't take instruction. Larry can't trust him in a game. That's what's happening. And the, the, the father was like kind of shaking his head. And the uncle was like, oh, really? You know, so he was and they, and they told me that they were going to pick it outside the arena, the pyramid, the before the next game they playing. They were playing to Paul. So, I, you know, I wrote I wrote the story and. But, you know, I, I sort of gave, you know, I was very, very able to both sides it because I was in practice and I explained what the pro- problem was. And then I went outside um, the pyramid at, before the game of the like, 20 minutes for the game. I walked out, looked out, you know, and you had to walk a long way. They walked all the way out to the street. There they were. They were picketing. So I could write that they picketed. But it wasn't the bigger story. Like if I was if I didn't know, it would have been a huge story. Cause I, cause there's a parent saying, you know, the kids should play and they're going to pick it. And that's a story one way or another, but when you know the truth, it's not really. So that I've always used that as an example of why more coaches should allow their, their journalists to see what's going on because then they know what, you know, they know what's being taught and whether it's being accepted or not. And so that's for me, you know, and now in my, again, in my position, I get access to a lot of that. If I want to go see a practice at almost any school in the country, I can see it. I, and I'm not, and I'm not usually surrounded by their daily beat writers. So I, I do think that that would be something that if I were to, to advise coaches on, you know, I, I've done a few clinics here and there um, advising coaches on media relations. And that's one of the first stories I tell because it, it, I think it, it, it can be so helpful to, to, to lessen stories like that. It wasn't a controversy. It was just a note. 
that's a great story because us coaches, we always say, you know, if only people could see what's going on in practice, they would, they would understand why we're pulling the trigger or not pulling the trigger on, on, on game night. And, and you mentioned some things all year. And I've told Jared that I've really appreciated uh, your Monday episodes here on, on, with Archie Miller and that the players need to be committed to doing the right things that, that are being asked of them. And, and that goes back. I can see now where you have that uh, from that Memphis story. That That's good. Um, so what, what does, in your mind, make a, a good coach? And, and what do you look for when watching a practice or watching a game that says to you, you know, this guy is, uh, is good. And, and I think all coaches are good. Uh, the the really great ones win a lot. Uh, you you can't be bad and get hired in the college game. You have to be good, and then some things happen to get you relieved of a job. But what does make a better than average or better than good coach, uh, in your opinion, and and the things that you evaluate? I think that the ability to to recognize the proper details and be able to communicate it, and you know, like I said, being able to see so many different practices. If you're if you're in there, even if you know the game well, you can see that almost everybody at that level has a very strong understanding of the game and an ability to communicate to some level. But then the, the ones who really get it, then like if you are watching John Beeline, uh, for instance, uh, you can see the difference in in what he's able to do, uh, or Mike Shashevsky, or or Bill Self, or Tom Izzo. You're, you're able to see that they are able to, to see something several steps ahead and see problems that other coaches might not see and, and communicate the correction, whether it's, you know, whether it's the instruction in the first part that, you know, oh, here, you got to do this or the, you know, the harangue in the, by the time you had to say the same thing six times, um, you know, you can see the ability to communicate detail. You know, I've been in a lot of Mick Cronin's practices and I've seen that uh, ability or Chris Mack uh, at Louisville. And I have, I have been to some arches as well, not at Indiana, but at Dayton. And you can see that, that, that there is that ability. And, you know, I think a lot of arches comes from being around so many great basketball people. I mean, he started with his father and his father was brilliant. His father was one of the best coaches I've ever seen. Uh, John Miller at Blackhawk High School in Western Pennsylvania, which is where I started. I mean, I covered John's high school teams when I was a young reporter. And then being around his brother and being around Thad Mata and Herb Sendek, all these guys. So he's picked up a lot. And so he understands the game at a really high level. And I, I think he communicates at a really high level as well. I don't think he's felt to this point that circumstances have allowed him to hold the players accountable to the level that he would like to. He's never communicated that to me. This is strictly observational. But I see things that have happened on the floor with the Hoosiers that if he had everybody that he wanted in place, and I don't think he would have allowed them to happen. I think that some of those things would have been like, okay, we've given you enough rope. Uh, it's not happening. Uh, you're, you're, not, you're not rowing in the direction that we want you to row. Let's try something else for a while. And he, he and we saw that to an extent uh, at the end of Northwestern game. Uh, but I don't think that that stuck. I don't think that that necessarily stuck with them. So I, 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 
I think that if everything falls in place with next year's roster, it will, it will be his first real chance to go ahead and coach with, you know, fully Arches team, even though there are still some players who will be there who were recruited by the prior staff. I think that next year's team has the chance to be his first 100% Archie Miller, Indiana team. And at that point, I think that those who have been critical of him will either be affirmed in their criticism or they'll be thwarted in their criticism. And, 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 and at that point, if they're still able to be critical or justified in their criticism, then, you know, then, then it'll be warranted. So that, I, I think next year is a really important year for Archie Miller as Indiana's basketball coach. I, I've been a big fan of his. Uh, I have uh, coaching friends that coach in the Cincinnati area that have been to his practices and, and, and talked to him and have some of their kids recruited by Archie. So, uh, yeah, I just think there have been some circumstances with player personnel and, and early on with uh, some scholarships uh, that, that he had to maintain for APR and things like that. Uh, you know, and I, I, I try not to be an excuse maker, but there are some things that happen in a, in a program, and yet he has won more games every year and would have made the tournament this year. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a big Archie fan. Big Ten coaching, um, how good is it in comparison to the other uh, major conferences? It's very good. Uh, you know, I, it, obviously it, it fluctuates a little bit depending on um, you know, some of the some of the I, I think John Howard did a really nice job in his first year at Michigan. But I think saying, you know, to say that he's not yet John Beeline is not an unfair, uh, criticism or unfair assertion. Uh, John Beeline had 40 years to grow into one of the elite coaches in all of college basketball. Uh, Jawan has had six months, eight months. So it's, so it, it, you can say it's not at the same level that it was when John was there because he was one of the absolute best and he's not in the league any longer, but it's still at a very high level. You have a hall of famer in Tom Izzo. You have a tremendous veteran coach at Purdue uh, with Matt Painter, who gets the most out of his guys, Illinois in really good hands right now. Greg Gard did a phenomenal job at Wisconsin. Rutgers has not had a better coach in its – Tom Young, maybe. Bob Wenzel did a nice job. Steve Peichel is doing phenomenal work at Rutgers. Honestly, I, I, I voted for Steve for – I don't know if I voted in any official ballots now or not. I can't – I know I had an all-Big Ten vote. I don't remember if I had a coach of the year vote. But my own personal coach of the year vote for the Big Ten would have gone to Steve. And I said on – BTN, I said, what's happened is he's, he's, everybody expects them to not be horrible now because he's been there for four years. So now they're good. And people think, well, you know, it's Pike, you know, they're good. And instead they're like, you got to remember this was their first winning conference season in 29 years. I mean, since 1991, they had not had a winning conference season. Just, and they were 11 and nine in the league. They needed to win their last two games to feel comfortable about getting in the tournament. Their last two games were Maryland and at Purdue and they did it. I, I, I was a little surprised. I, I thought Greg did a phenomenal job at Wisconsin, but I was a little surprised that there wasn't more support for Pike at, uh, 
uh, with what he did at Rutgers. I, I do think when you go up and down the league, Chris Holtman at Ohio State's terrific. And you can go up and down the league and you're going to find successful coaches everywhere. And when, when you talk about a college coach, the one thing that I think you have to understand is that X and O is important, but it's probably about eighth on the list of important things for a college basketball coach. Uh, getting players, uh, recruiting players, retaining players, practice and preparation, uh, making sure that they stay, you know, uh, they stay within the boundaries of the rules, making sure that they stay academically ineligible. All of those things are more important than a particular sub at a particular time. I just rewatched for uh, the series that I did for sportingnews.com on NCAA tournament games that I missed. I did. I went back for each round and rewatched a game that I missed. And in this case, I rewatched the last NCAA tournament final that I wasn't at, which was Michigan Carolina in 93. And I watched Steve Fisher and Dean Smith go at it. And, you know, in the end, it comes down to a player, not hand, you know, a, a, a player maybe making a, there was a drive with about three minutes left in the game, four minutes left in the game. Michigan's up 65-61. And the ball gets swung over to the corner, and Donald Williams is there. And Jimmy King does a terrible job of getting back into position. He's probably a little bit out of position. He does a terrible job of getting back into position. And then Kevin Salvadori, who was a 15-minute-a-game reserve, completely seals off Chris Webber and basically gives Donald Williams a wide-open lane to the hoop. I mean, that's all. that was all done way before that. Like, Dean Smith didn't yell, hey, Kevin, seal Chris. No, that was something that was taught for six months before that moment. So it wasn't so much about, you know, what X or what O. It was about uh, the fact that Michigan chose to double-team Eric Montross on almost every post-touch and to bring the double from the, from the perimeter even if it was Donald Williams and Donald Williams ended up making five out of seven threes, that, that those are all things that were game prep. So I think that, I think that uh, sometimes fans, because they're watching it in the moment and an analyst will say, you know, I'm not sure about that sub or I'm not sure about that play call or whatever. So co- fans are conditioned to think that's the single most important thing in whether a coach can coach. And I can tell you that, there are a lot of really successful college basketball coaches that not only is that the eighth most important thing, but it's probably their eighth most developed skill. It's probably the thing that they don't do the best, but they are great at getting players in. They're great at getting to play together. They're great at preparing them to play. And so their teams win more often than they lose. Interesting. We're doing this rewatch series and to hear, uh, some of the announcers really get on coaches for taking a time out or not subbing, as you just mentioned before. But there are so many uh, things that go into a basketball program at the college level, um, like you said, that, that really make a good coach. And all of those Big Ten coaches make it tough, game in and game out, in the Big Ten. It is going to be a meat grinder for a long time uh, because these guys um, – 
do well. We're, we're running here in the last few minutes. I got a list of coaches. Uh, if I would just say a, a coach, and there's so many that I missed on this list, but just one thing or one thought about their impact on college basketball. And you could be as, as short or, or take this uh, whichever way. We'll start with uh, John Wooden. Well, John Wooden was one of the original great teachers. And, but, you know, one of, the, one of the things that makes a great teacher is being open to new ideas. And I'll give Seth Davis uh, credit for this. Did a wonderful biography of John Wooden. If you're bored, uh, go on uh, your, your favorite local bookseller's website and buy the uh, Wooden uh, biography by Seth Davis. And he talked about how the tactic that changed UCLA was a full court press back when not a lot of a, a zone press when not a lot of people were doing that. And it wasn't John's idea. It was one of his assistants. So being open to that is part of being a great teacher. Bob Knight. Wow. You had to go there. didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Bob was, Bob was, uh, you know, Bob was the best teacher of the game that has ever lived. Uh, there's no question in my mind. And, and, and I always used to say, uh, back when it was relevant, when Pat took over for Bob at Texas Tech, it was the worst first job that Pat could have because only Bob Knight could win with Bob Knight's players. With, with, those, with that group, if Bob could make that team of, that was left at Texas Tech at the time a capable team. Just as Bob could win a national championship in 1987 with uh, a couple of second-round picks and Steve Alford, nobody else could have done that. No one's ever, and I talked about this a week ago, no one's ever built a national champion as around a six-foot-two jump shooter except Bob Knight, and no one else could have. Dean Smith. Yeah, you know, Dean was great at, at teaching techniques and tactics that he believed worked, and he was going to stick with those techniques and tactics through a lot. Uh, he was great at getting players to sacrifice for the team. Uh, that was really important. And, and you saw that all through, you know, the, the old joke about no one can hold Michael Jordan under 20 except Dean Smith. Uh, you know, that was part of it. Uh, being willing to play at, at whatever tempo was necessary uh, that he felt would win. And that's how you wound up with 47-43 Carolina over Virginia, that sort of thing. I, you know, I, he, was, he was a unique coach and one of the greats. And a recent article of yours kept you from seeing a great semifinal game of Duke uh, UNLV because he got kicked out uh, of a game. So yes. everyone needs to go find that article uh, and, and that story. Um, thanks to Coach Smith, you had to write a, a long article. Coach uh, Coach K at Duke. You know, I think all the, of my era, the guys who you know Calhoun and Beheim and 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 K and and Izzo and and Calipari and Patino, all of them have their own individual, like this is what they're better at than everybody else. For Calhoun, I think he was a better scout than any college coach that in my era. He could find a player like a Shabazz Napier and turn him into something extraordinary. Uh, and what, and, and with Calipari, it's getting players to buy into playing with each other, it, you know, getting talented players to play together. Uh, and what, with Kay, it's teaching communication. If you go to a Shashevsky practice, that is what he is drilling over and over. He wants every player out there 
to understand what the other is doing. And he wants them to, the, to understand it because the player next to that player is telling him what he's doing. It, I, 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 no other coach that I see spends as much time on communication as Shashevsky. And it's really something to see if you ever get the chance. Well, we're running, running close to our time here, but the best character, I'm thinking uh, Raleigh Massimino. I have Tarkanian on the list. Um, you know, Cheney from Temple. Um, there, there's, there's just some great coaches that had some great outward personalities. Who would you pick on the, uh, just on a real quick, uh, had the best character, best personality as a head coach? I did love Cheney. He was so much fun. And I, and he was, he was someone that I dealt with from the very beginning of my career when I was still in my early twenties, mid twenties. Uh, and he was, he was just an amazing character. And he, he, you know, he would say whatever it was on his mind. He wasn't afraid of anybody. He was to, you know, politically correct, politically incorrect. Uh, if he believed it, he would say it. Uh, I, I enjoyed working with him a ton and really uh, wished he could have gotten a final four because he, uh, he got so close so many times, uh, and I really thought he was going to make it in 88. And, you know, I, I, there's a story that I, I don't know if I've ever told it publicly. Uh, but in 1988, I was my first year covering Duquesne uh, at the Pittsburgh Press. And they had a banquet the night before the Atlantic 10 tournament in Morgantown, I think we were. And they had a banquet to give out the, the awards. And I was sitting – they had, like, all the sports writers – who covered the league sitting in the same place. And when they came around to player of the year, um, Mark Macon was a freshman in the league that year. And he was clearly the best player in the league. And he was clearly the best player on his team, but he had some very good veteran teammates, Howard Evans, the point guard, Tim Perry, power forward up front, ended up being a top 10 pick in the NBA. But Mark Macon was the best player in the league. And he was the one who changed that team from a very good Atlantic 10 team into a national power for a year. They ended up number one, a lot of that season. And they announced the player of the year and we're all expecting it to be Mark Macon. And Tim Perry is the, is the guy who gets the call. And we're like every, so I polled every single sports writer there. And I don't know exactly what the voting percentage was, how that worked. I don't know if it was all media or part media, part coaches, but I polled every single, and there were probably 20 of us and no one voted for Tim Perry. Everybody voted for Mark Macon. And I still think to this day that John Cheney said, don't you give that award to my freshman. That'll mess up my team chemistry and screw me up in the tournaments. You give it to Tim Perry, and I still think that. I don't know if it's true, untrue or not. It may be fake news, but I, to this day, believe that John Chaney told the Atlantic 10 not to give Mike Macon the Player of the Year award because it would mess with his chemistry. Well, that, that's that's great. And I, if he said it. I, I imagine – that over the years you've had many, many stories, good and bad, and I thank you for, for coming on today and talking a little bit about um, what's not happening with tonight's game, the transfer portal, and a little trip down uh, memory lane and some information about coaches. I have really, again, appreciated uh, you bringing to our fan base uh, here at Indiana um, some, some non-rose-colored glasses that we all do, Jared and I do, uh, but it did give some credence to what goes on in a, in a – in a program like Indiana with Archie coming in and really gave people some things to think about. Um, but uh, you're well-respected by this dude, uh, and I appreciate you uh, and, and all the work that you do, and we'll see you next Monday. That's an honor, Brian. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it uh, very much, and you have a great week, and stay safe, everybody. Okay, Mike, we'll see you. 
And that'll do it for this uh, edition of Banner Monday. I'm the coach, Brian Tonsoni. Join us tonight when we watch the 1976 Indiana Hoosiers defeat, or maybe you don't know that, or play the Michigan Wolverines for the national championship uh, with a post-game show afterwards. Uh, looking forward to, uh, to that uh, stroll down memory lane as well. Uh, thanks to Jared Morris and everyone at the assembly call. I did not have the chat mob or chat room up, so I'm sorry if I did not get to any of those questions. I'll try to go back and look at the replay, uh, but but what an honor it is. Uh, Mike does a really good job of, of really being honest uh, in his work. Go read his work at the Sporting News. Uh, watch him on the Big Ten Network and on Fox. Uh, he really does a nice job. So, take care, Hoosier fans. Stay safe. Uh, we, we got a few more weeks of this. Um, we want everyone to, to be as healthy as possible. Peace. Sticky notes, email alerts, a string around your finger. They're just not big enough. So here's a big reminder from the California Lottery. The Mega Millions jackpot is over $250 million. Whew. Play now. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player five. Sticky notes, email alerts, a string around your finger. They're just not big enough. So here's a big reminder from the California Lottery. The Mega Millions jackpot is over $250 million. Play now. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player five. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on Carol. She's more focused on hitting a high note than the car in front of her. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California, subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates Northbrook, Illinois.